0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Have a happy 2021. Now back to the show. Coming up, Identifying systemic racism. Well, apparently there's an app for that.
1: Thrive is about money and power. Nobody wants to talk about the money. We cannot forget economic injustice.
0: The Southwest Philly native who went to Harvard and created an algorithm that has the potential to transform government policy nationwide. Then a group that trains real estate developers has partnered with the Philadelphia Housing Authority. PHA has a number of properties that need to be renovated and used. How Jumpstart Philly is keeping development local and eliminating blight at the same time. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at Donors I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is institutionalized racism. How do you identify government systems with discrimination baked in? Well, there's an app for that. Thrive is a company that has created an algorithm that performs an equity audit. It was designed by President and CEO Amalara Satiraghan, originally from Philadelphia. She is a Harvard doctoral candidate, and she designed the software, which is making... Inroads to municipalities nationwide. Omalara is here with us. Welcome to Flashpoint. Let's jump right in. So, what is Thrive to a, a layperson?
1: So, so Thrive is about money and power, and we work with local governments to answer the call for racial justice by looking at where they are deploying their resources. That's the money. We know what programs work in breaking cycles of poverty and communities of color. To what extent, local government, are you investing in these particular programs, right? So that's the money. The power is that part of what Thrive also does is we look at authentic engagement, authentic empowerment of residents. And that's also included in our algorithm because we all know that systems of oppression have taken root because people have been powerless, right? They have been systematically powerless. So how do you measure that? Okay, participatory budgeting. In a lot of jurisdictions in this country, Johnny resident, right? Like everyday resident can take part of, can participate in the budgetary process where um, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts right now. And every year in the mail, there's a list of programs that I can vote on what I wanna spend my tax dollars on. That's power, right? In a lot of different school systems across the country, there are um, student advisory boards where students get to chime in on on maybe policies, um, um, disciplinary policies, et cetera. There are also parent advisory boards where parents can work with principals on deciding what programming their children need. So Thrive believes that this shouldn't just be happening in Cambridge or in Nevada at some random school district. These should be standards, right? Standards where we begin sharing authentic power with residents. And so our equity audits measure the extent to which a local government is actively trying to mitigate disparities based on how they move their money and based on if they share their power. It seems to me that
0: this program that you've created sort of takes people beyond the rhetoric. You open up their books, you open up their policies, you open up what they're actually doing and compare it to what is being done where things are actually changing. How did you come up with this idea?
1: So I've spent the last, maybe 15 years of my career as a program evaluator. So I have been looking at youth programs, at child welfare programs, at HIV AIDS, at environmental justice in different contexts. So my first job out of graduate school was at the Urban Institute at the Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy. I did program evaluations. I studied the extent to which programs actually yielded outcomes for vulnerable populations. And so Just because of my professional training, I've just seen so many programs in public health, in HIV AIDS, in the education system. I was deputy director of DC's juvenile justice agency overseeing performance management, right? I've been very fortunate to be able to identify programs that literally, right, have been empirically proven Right? They do randomized controlled trials. They do all kinds of testing to know whether this or that therapeutic intervention or mentoring program has actually yielded results. So I have a good handle on programs that actually work. And people talk about your heart and your hands and your head, right? Like all of this is in my head, right? Just because of the places I've worked, I have um, access to information. What is in my heart was activated over the summer with the killing of George Floyd. I am not a direct services provider. I'm not a social worker. I'm not an educator. I was not built for those professions. Maybe I don't have the patience, maybe I don't have the emotional stamina, right? To do all of that. I know regression models. I have skills that I can deploy to make this country better. And so in my heart, I wanted to contribute and honestly, Cherry, I was getting frustrated because you see all of these companies put out diversity statements. And then what? What happens to actually change outcomes for low-income people of color? From my perspective, the theory of change that I have planted the flag in the ground on is we need to follow this money and we need to access power.
0: The, the reason why I love this idea is because the only thing that is going to change this, and Dr. King, even said this, was the check. We talk about money. That's right. Nobody wants to talk
1: about the money. They never want to talk about the money. We cannot forget economic injustice. And so I was very frustrated over the summer in the racial reckoning that we were not having discussions that were really yielding changes in the economic position of black and brown people and maybe we have to talk about systemic racism first right like maybe we have to talk about implicit bias first and i respect that um and i want to be working on economic injustice particularly as it relates to people of color and i have um a system i have an infrastructure and thrive to be able to do that. And at the end of the day, local governments are at the front lines for poor people, for people in general, right? If you need housing, if you need food, if you need the potholes fixed, if you need the snow cleared, if the, you need the trash picked up, if you need your child educated, if you need law enforcement to come and assist you without, killing you, right? These are all local government services. And so local government has such a profound impact on the everyday lives of people. We need to make sure that where local government is deploying its resources is actually additive to people, particularly people of color and not injurious to people of color. And so um, that's why it is so important for local government to really be at the front lines for looking at their own books and how they deploy their resources.
0: And so this is literally an algorithm you came up with that will check. You you can look, you can go through their their spending, the bottom line, you can go through where they deploy resources, people, et cetera. Are there red flags that you think you've been able to identify across the board? that are caught by this algorithm that are clear signs on one hand that there's a lot of uh, inequities uh, here, or that on the other hand, this is something that is
1: moving things in the right direction? Yeah. So that's a great question. We can go straight into the school system. A lot of the measures are, algorithm sounds really complex, right? An algorithm is just a formula. A lot of the measures are um, yes or no. Do we have this or do we not? Some of the other measures are, how much are we best investing toward A versus B? And so let's think about public schools. Public schools have what are called um, school resource officers. Those are police officers. They wear a uniform and they're cops in schools. And they're there to keep control, perhaps intimidate, right, we have police officers in schools. But the reason why we have police officers in the schools is because there is um, either be a behavioral issue or a school climate problem. And so we send in law enforcement in case something pops off, we have people there to solve the problem. Okay, well, all of the literature actually tells us that social workers, behavioral health interventions, restorative justice programs, the way adults behave in the school actually set the tone for how young people will behave. So are we spending money on social workers in schools, on training for educators to improve school climate, or are we spending money to send police officers into schools? To control the population. We are not out here saying send the cops out of the schools. There are many people who are saying that. What I am saying is let's compare how much money you're investing in behavioral health programs that have been scientifically proven to improve grades, improve attendance, and reduce problem behaviors, right? About 2,000 bucks a school. How much money are we spending on that? Versus how much money are we spending on law enforcement to patrol children? These are some of the red flags that show up in the algorithms. So if we're spending twice as much on law enforcement as we are spending on behavioral health, school climate, restorative justice programs, then that should tell us as a a public school system, as a community, we have a problem.
0: Yeah. And that could, that, I could see how that could be blown out to a city. That's right. spending, um, you know, a, a hard, like, a, you know, more than half of the budget on policing.
1: That's right. That's and a- then you're ridiculous. like,
0: look at what we're spending on behavioral health. Look at what we're spending on job creation and training programs. You actually have
1: municipalities that are using this right now. So we don't have municipalities that are using it right today. We have a number of jurisdictions that I'm talking to, to okay. begin selling or implementing the, the software. So, so that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping that, you know, fingers crossed that jurisdictions will actually want to do something. And I have to, I, to be completely fair and honest to local governments, people are interested. I started sending out, I sent out 10 emails mid-December, you know, Christmas time, the holidays, people are typically not fully kind of aware or concentrating on their inbox. Literally that same day, four people said, four out of 10 said, I, I want to learn more about this. The next day, a couple more people asked, right? Oh, I'll try it again. I tried it again, beginning of January. Let me just float this out to literally 10 people, literally that same day six jurisdictions said, I want to learn more about this. I've been on calls with jurisdictions in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in um, everywhere, right? Um, And this tells me something. This tells me that, and I'm talking to typically chief, chief equity officers. This tells me that people know that something has to be done and they are hungry for some sort of solution. Um, and that gives me hope. That gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, I could see you even creating corporate versions of this. Corporations have asked since that article came out, corporations yeah. have asked for this.
0: You're from the greater Philadelphia area, yes. born and raised. Tell us a little bit about your origin story. You're now doing this work, and, and you could see that how this could help someone like you, your family if it's done right.
1: So I was born and raised in Southwest Philly. I remember playing in Clark Park. I remember learning how to ride my bike on the sidewalk back in the day. Um, I remember taking the number 13 trolley, I think because my babysitter, Mrs. Brown, um, may she rest in peace, lived somewhere along the trolley line. My parents came here from Nigeria they ended up splitting up and my dad went back to Nigeria. And so my mom became a single low income black woman raising two kids. And what usually is a statistic that is a negative one for my family turned out to be very positive. My brother and I both ended up going to Harvard College for our undergraduate degrees. And so how did this happen? This happened because my mom had access to opportunities. No one in my family is any smarter than anyone else. We had doors that were opened for us. And Thrive is all about opening doors and providing opportunities so that everyone can thrive. So, so part of the research behind Thrive is research that came out of Northwestern University that the Urban Institute picked up. And it is, you have a multiplicative effect on breaking cycles of poverty if you work with moms and kids at the same time. That's exactly what happened in my household. My mom went to school at night to become a pharmacist. Luckily, um, she, she worked for a university And so as a result, she was fully reimbursed for her tuition. Opportunity, free college, right? And so she took advantage of those opportunities, went to school at night and saved all of her money to send my brother and me to Catholic schools. Why did we go to Catholic schools? We're not Catholic. 70, 70% of kids, black and brown kids in Philly public schools, in the 80s and 90s when my brother and I were coming up failed one or both parts of the state test. My mom knew that that was not the destiny for her kids. So she went to school at night and she scraped together you know, everything she had to send us to better schools. This was the multiplier effect in our family. We watched my mom struggle and hustle and that motivated us, my brother and me, to struggle and hustle. It's a chain reaction. It's the multiplier effect. That's what the Urban Institute called it. I I, I also wanna pull out another important part of this story. My mother had to pay for her children to be educated when in the United States of America, we are supposed to have a vibrant and thriving public education system. That was not the case. And so this woman had to go into her own pocket to figure out how she was gonna pay to get these kids educated. So the reason why I'm in a, I'm currently in a doctoral program in education. The reason why I am so committed to improving these public systems is that there are so many more people who could turn into doctors and lawyers and journalists, right? Who look like me and you, who are black and brown people. If the systems would just work at a higher level. And we really are asking people to do too much, right? Like look at my family story. This woman did too much. She did more than what she should have had to have done. But I want to point out that your
0: mom got free education. So if she had to pay... She couldn't pay. There's no way she could pay for herself and her kids. Catholic schools, I just did a story, are closing. Yeah. Right. They're more affordable than a lot of these private schools. If your mom did not have, shout out, please speak your mother's name right now. (laughs) Please speak your mother's name. Christine Fetirigan. Your mother. Yeah. Amazing woman. She is was able to, a lot of people can't carry that. Yes. A lot of people can't physically carry it, health, whatever, more children. It could have been anything, circumstances, but she was able to do this, but it showed a lot.
1: Um, so, Mary, my, let, me tell, let me tell you how much she had to strategize. My There's seven years between my brother and me. So when he was going to college, he went to Harvard. She had to pay for him to go to Harvard she could not afford to pay his harvard tuition and my catholic school tuition so in 5th grade we moved to the suburbs so we moved to i went to cheltenham high school cedarbrook middle school cheltenham high school benjamin netanyahu famously went to that school i wasn't the only kid to go to harvard after that you know from that school in my class right i don't know 5% of the kids went to ibs and like really prestigious colleges my point is that she had to game the system right She had to figure out, let me just uproot my whole family and move 30 minutes away, right? Cheltenham is not that far, so that I can go to a free, excellent public school, because she couldn't afford to pay for for my Catholic school tuition and my brother's tuition at Harvard. And so we are asking low-income people, like, this is extraordinary. This is extraordinary. Extraordinary. We're asking people to literally uproot their whole selves <laughs> and move, right? In order to, to get the education. And so the last thing that my mom says she credits to our success was one, her ability to go to college for free, like you also mentioned, and the low cost of childcare. My mom, she was laughing one day. She's like, I paid Miss Brown $20 to take care of you guys. $20 a week to care for a newborn these days is something like $400 a week. Well, that's rent, right? And so we put so many barriers in front of low income people that it is literally impossible to climb out of poverty. And then we want to blame, well, you're lazy or you're this. No, it is literally impossible. 84% of kids born in poverty will live in poverty for the rest of their lives. That was a Bloomberg study from 2018, I believe. This is the reason why the cost of childcare, the quality of the public education system, the inability to find work for parents, these are all the reasons why being born in poverty is literally a sentence, a life sentence for 84% of children.
0: And I gotta ask you before we go, Amalara, please, tell me this
1: story about your what you woke up listening to there, you <laughs> gotta tell us that story go I right was ahead in the bed with my mom we had lived in a small apartment because she had bills to pay and so every morning her alarm clock would be kyw news radio 1060 and so i was so excited that you were interviewing me because i grew up listening to that jingle and when I, when I told my mom about this interview, I was like, mom, do you remember KYW? She's like 106. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, this has been an honor and I would love to bring Thrive to my hometown of Philadelphia.
0: I hope you do. And I know if you ever open it up to investors, you would have a lot of people willing to support you without blinking. Yeah. You know? Because I know this is like, this is something that I think so many people could get behind that could really be life-changing for a lot of us who grew up in poverty, for a lot of us whose mothers were single and had to go to school at night. And that change, lifting herself out of poverty, you know, with through education helped her kids at the same time.
1: And that's real. That's real. I'm just a startup. You know, I'm just starting out, but there has been so much enthusiasm and so much interest from government and from potential funders that I can only believe that we as a nation want to do better. And we as a nation want to, to be more fair and to give people the common dignity to be able to thrive.
0: So I, I, I appreciate that, you know, you're one a person who's been through this, who's seen it, you yeah. watched it from, from birth yes. and now have grown because of this. This is my family oh,
1: story. This yeah. is
0: it. And this is so beautiful. Please tell us. Do you have a website? Well, I have no doubt that you will go very far with this. It's the right time. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful chat. Thank you so much. Next up, an innovative partnership between the Philadelphia Housing Authority and a group of real estate developers. They can
2: buy the PHA property for $10 renovated. The Jumpstart
0: Philly PHA pilot program, how it works and why it could be opening the door to much much more. We'll be right back. Hey Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, Why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our newsmaker of the week Andrew Wyatt he's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby he explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early all of this and more please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review now back to the show This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg, the newsmaker of the week. As a new partnership between the Philadelphia Housing Authority and Jumpstart Philly is designed to eliminate blight. Here to tell us about this innovative program is Jumpstart Philly founder Ken Weinstein. Welcome to Flashpoint.
2: Great, thanks for having me, Cherry.
0: So I'm so excited to have you here. I think the Jumpstart Philly program is wonderful. Uh, For folks who've never heard of Jumpstart Philly, explain what it is and how it works.
2: Uh, Jumpstart Philly is a unique economic development program that we started six years ago where we are training uh, people local to their community, so that they can buy and renovate properties in their community and work to improve their community.
0: You guys have had a number of graduates, including myself. People have gone through the program. Folks, most of the time, have no experience developing property. And you teach them how to do it on a small-scale level.
2: Yeah, it's... uh, a program that that I wish I had 32 years ago when I got into real estate development. You know, it just makes a lot of sense to try to keep wealth local, to try to diversify who is developing in in the Philadelphia area, to help people gain a nest egg so that their lives and their families' lives can be better.
0: And so, you guys decided to partner with the Philadelphia Housing Authority. Why did you decide to do that? And then how will this partnership work?
2: Yeah, well, you know, as you know from the program, Sherry, sourcing properties is one of the hardest parts of real estate development. And PHA has a number of properties that need to be renovated and used. So it just made sense to partner with them.
0: And so how will this work? PHA will provide the source. You guys will provide the developers how will you choose, and then what will these developers do?
2: PHA is starting this project out by uh, offering up 10 properties to graduates of our Jumpstart Philly program. We have opened up a lottery so that uh, 10 lucky winners can be chosen. We already have over 300 entries. And once these 10 lucky JumpStart grads get chosen, they will then qualify themselves for a JumpStart loan so that they can buy the PHA property for $10, renovate it, and sell it to hopefully a PHA client for $175,000 or less.
0: Explain what it means to be a JumpStart Philly graduate because these are new developers, but at the same time, they do have support.
2: That's right. So all of the graduates have gone through our 12 to 16 hour jumpstart training program, which is offered by a number of different groups around the city. And once they go through that, you know, you don't know everything about real estate development, but it gives you a head start. It's certainly 12 to 16 hours more than I had when I got started. Uh, We also, for anyone interested, we assign them a mentor to walk them through their first, second, third projects.
0: Wonderful. And so these mentors sort of help you miss big glaring potholes in the process.
2: We certainly hope so. 32 years later, you know, we still make uh, mistakes in real estate development. So it's an ongoing learning process. But yes, if we can help aspiring developers avoid early mistakes, we can get them started faster in the exciting world of real estate development.
0: You know, Philadelphia has a problem and you sought to found and start this organization to help solve that problem. Talk about that and how this PHA partnership kind of helps move that um, ball along.
2: My personal passion is blight removal. I just think everyone in the city of Philadelphia has the right to not have to live next to a blighted property. So I have been working at it for 32 years, but six years ago decided that uh, you can't do it all yourself. So I enlisted thousands of Jumpstart grads to help me remove blight from Philadelphia's neighborhood. So PHA has a number of properties that need to be renovated. So this just makes a lot of sense. For both my Jumpstart grads, for PHA, uh, which needs to figure out what to do with these properties, and for people living in these neighborhoods who, like I
0: said, shouldn't have have to live next to a blighted property. And there are tens of thousands of people on the PHA housing waiting list. As well. So, this kind of opens up, uh, uh, you know, availability of of positive renovated housing stock to individuals who may not otherwise have access to their own home.
2: Right. These properties actually are going to be for sale. So, PHA has been qualifying their tenants for mortgages so that they can purchase these properties after jumpstarters have finished renovating.
0: And so they're starting with 10. What's your vision for this partnership?
2: You know, there is so much demand that I have no doubt if PHA turned over another 100 properties to us, that we could easily find 100 jumpstart grads and qualify them for jumpstart loans to get going. So, you know, the sky's the limit, but we'll start with 10. We'll show PHA that our Jumpstart grads know how to do a quality renovation so that a homeowner can live there in a fairly maintenance-free
0: house. And why is this such a good solution for a city like Philadelphia?
2: I think it's a good solution for a lot of urban neighborhoods to uh, do a Jumpstart program. We have gotten demand from cities all over the country And I think it's a matter of time before we see 100 Jumpstart programs. We already have seven in Philadelphia and recently Jumpstart Wilmington uh, got going. So I think we're going to uh, see our curriculum and our model uh, around the country very shortly.
0: And will other programs um, be opening up? Because I'm sure people are going to hear this and be like, hmm, maybe I should be a Jumpstart Philly grad. Maybe I should try to figure out are there acceptance of new folks in these programs
2: yeah absolutely we're still even during the pandemic we are running virtual jumpstart classes I have 120 jumpstarters who are graduating uh, from our program and we'll be doing at least two to three more uh, training programs this year
0: yeah wow busy guy huh all over Yeah. yeah yeah is there anything else you'd like to add Ken Uh, No, I just think uh,
2: it's it's part of a movement that I hope people jump on. We just have seen incredible demand because a lot of people want to get into real estate development and, you know, gain a piece of the pie, but they feel like they don't have the experience or the financial resources to do so. So we're going to continue to try to give them both so that they can jump in.
0: Yeah. And I I like one unique aspect of your program is that it's a a lot of times because you have seven different jumpstarts and they actually prioritize the people who live in those communities. And you have a lot of people of color, a lot of women who are taking part in this. And that's that's a game changer for these communities.
2: Yeah, very much. I've been going to uh, real estate meetings for years and you look around the room and 95 percent of the room are white men. And I'm hoping, partly because of Jumpstart, that five years from now, that room will look very different. And uh, women and people of color who have been grossly underrepresented in real estate development uh, will become the majority, hopefully, in the future.
0: When will you start opening applications for the next round?
2: Uh, Applications are open for our training program. And people can either go to jumpstartgermantown.com and apply for our training program, or they can go to jumpstartphilly.com and apply for the loan program, which is open to graduates and non-graduates.
0: Wonderful. So I wanna say thank you so much to Ken Weinstein for coming on Flashpoint. Great, thanks for having me. Next up, they've led the nation in organ donations for 13 years in a row. A lot of people still waiting. The CEO of Gift of Light Donor Program discusses the pandemic and his extremely generous donors. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast by downloading the radio.com app Apple Podcast app or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now we here at KWW, we are all about community, and a local nonprofit is celebrating its 13th year in a row, leading the nation and coordinating the most organ donors. The result? 1621 organs transplanted here to talk about their effort is our patriot home care changemaker gift of life president howard Davis. howard congratulations um 13th consecutive year that the gift of life donor program has led the u.s in organ donation and it makes this region uh the most generous when it comes to organ donation in the country Just talk about what that means in real world terms as far as like the stats and and being able to save lives.
3: Well, we're very proud of the unbelievable generosity of our region for not just last year, but for the past 13 years. Uh, Last year, there were 619 generous organ donors, which resulted in uh, 1,619 people receiving the gift of life. Uh, a kidney, a heart, a liver, or lung transplant. Now, 13 years, uh, more transplants have been coordinated by Gift of Life than anywhere else in the country. That's really because of the cooperation and participation of hospitals and the unbelievable generosity of our community.
0: This year has been very extraordinary in many ways. Uh, because of the pandemic and beyond. How did the COVID-19 crisis impact your
3: work? We began a different process and the different process was making sure when we sent our transplant coordinators to hospitals to evaluate potential donor situations, they were protected. Getting access to the hospitals because they were restricting access even for families uh, during COVID. Hospitals understood that uh, our staff was uh, a part of the the care team for organ donation, and they made sure that we had access. Our communication changed, uh, particularly with families, because some of those families weren't present, not because their loved one had COVID, but because hospitals are restricting access because of COVID. But families continue to say yes. They, they continue to want to look out for their neighbor, uh, knowing that uh, there's over 5,000 people waiting for a transplant just in our region and 100,000 nationwide. When people hear that and they know that their loved one has passed away, people say yes. And offering that option gives people the opportunity to make some good out of a uh, tragedy.
0: Yeah we've lost thousands in our region to COVID-19. Um, did any of these COVID-19 specific people who are suffering from COVID-19, how did that impact your work?
3: Because COVID was an unknown, uh, our transplant centers and surgeons said that they would not accept someone who actively had COVID-19. However, we have had situations where someone had COVID you know a month ago or six months ago. Uh, and they recovered from the COVID, but unfortunately, they they passed away from something else, like you know they were in a car accident. And if they tested negative for COVID, then those people were considered for for donors, and uh, those organs were successfully transplanted.
0: Now, communities of color have been hit hard by COVID. On the same token, minority populations, people of color, are more likely to be waiting. For that match? Can you tie those two things together? What
3: happens with uh, people of color, particularly in the Black community, they're often more prevalent on the waiting list for transplants because of the incidence of diabetes and hypertension, which often causes kidney failure. About half of the people waiting for a transplant are people of color. And so um, when uh, a donor becomes available, They're allocated to the people who are the best match, but also who's been waiting the longest. And many of those people were successfully transplanted. So somewhere about half of the people who get transplanted in our region are people of
0: color. Are we getting the same amount of donorship from people of color?
3: Yeah. The number of people of color last year actually went up, even though the number of donors went down a little bit last year
0: most people think when you talk about gift of life that organ donation they, they don't necessarily think of the other uh, aspects of donation uh, could you touch base on that because the stats here are quite phenomenal
3: so organ donation uh, people are pretty familiar with like kidney transplants or heart transplants or lung transplants but Tissue transplantation, like a skin for burn victims, more people can become tissue donors and organ donors because of the the situation when someone passes away. And last year, we had a a record of uh, nearly 1,400 people saying yes to tissue donation. And uh, as many as 75 to 100 people can be helped by just one tissue donor. So that's literally tens of thousands of transplants. Not many people are aware of,
0: you know, while you all are celebrating this 13th consecutive year of leading the country, uh, there's a lot of work to be done.
3: A lot of people still waiting and more than 5,000 just here in the Philadelphia region. Um, And those people, you know, some of them uh, are on dialysis for kidney failure, but some are going to die waiting. That's ultimately what we want to stop. We have more people who can say yes. We want to get people to register as donors so that um, they know that they can uh, save their neighbors.
0: Well, I have to say to you, you know, Howard, I appreciate all the work that Gift of Life donor program does. uh, And congratulations on the 13th consecutive year leading the nation in the number of organ uh, transplants and donations. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from the late American professor and intellectual Mason Cooley. Money is power at its most liquid. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Oregon donors save lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.